Hi, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. My dad is getting some rest and recuperation this beautiful summer, and luckily this week, I have such an amazing guest to fill in that I'm pinching myself. She has a lot of similar experiences to me growing up with a dad in finance and investing, and now she's doing her own thing in the financial space as well. So I was on her extraordinary podcast, Financial Grown-Up, recently, and we just connected over having dads doing the same stuff and how we got through it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. My dad is getting some rest and recuperation this beautiful summer, and I luckily have an incredible guest to fill in with him. I am so excited that she's here. I'm pinching myself because we totally bonded over having very similar experiences growing up and getting into this whole investing and finance thing. Bobby Rebel is a certified financial planner, which is actually a really big deal, you guys, and she's going to tell us about that. And she's host of the incredible Financial Grown-Up podcast. And I'm not only saying it's incredible because I've been on it, but obviously that's part of the reason it's incredible. But she talks about all kinds of investing and finance-related stuff and people who really know what they're doing. So check out the Financial Grown-Up podcast. She's also the author of the bestseller, Self-Help and Personal Finance book, how to be a financial grown-up. She's a keynote speaker. She's an award-winning award winning TV anchor, and she's a personal finance columnist. She's been at Thomson Reuters, PBS, CNN, and CNBC. Basically, this chick knows what she's talking about. Bobby, thank you <laughs> so much for being uninvested. AKA, I'm old. I've been doing this for a long time, but I love it. Not thank you, at Danielle. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you because you and I totally bonded over first of all, being totally intimidated by investing stuff and having just discussed your extraordinary bio, it's hard for me to even get my mind around the idea that you would have ever been intimidated by anything to do with investing or finance. So yeah, so growing up, my dad was just like you. He was initially a lawyer. You're still a lawyer, obviously. And then he wanted to make the move to Wall Street. So he worked initially as an energy sector analyst and moved up. He was the head of research and then moved into investment banking in the 80s and eventually was actually chairman of a publicly traded company. So he had a big Wall Street career and definitely intimidating for sure because we were always hearing about the deals oh so you were hearing about it from the side of like here's all the amazing stuff i'm doing and probably using a lot of language that you didn't understand lots of jargon absolutely did not understand a lot of it and in fact he even wrote a book that i have yet to read <laughs> and even the title was scary wait you have so not read his book no, I have not read his book. Um, it's called Financial Futures and Investment Strategy. And it was written, to be fair, in 1984. So I was very young at the time, but still intimidating. I remember just, you know, being proud of him, but reading the dedication. Yeah, yeah. To his mom. And that was basically it. It's, it's <laughs> funny. I totally relate to you not reading the book because... And I can't even quite put my finger on why. It's a little bit like as soon as you read it, you have to engage with it and understand it. Yeah. 
It's intimidating. It's definitely intimidating. And there's a lot of jargon out there. And that's why I appreciate your show with your dad, because I think that you guys do a great job of breaking it down. Even if at this point I do understand a lot of it, the way that it's approached makes it more accessible. And I think that's what appeals to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's this feeling out there that we're supposed to know about financial jargon and about investing and about markets. And Yet nobody teaches us this stuff. And even you and I, who have parents who were in that field, they speak about it on such a high level that it, it's, it's almost as though they're not speaking about it. Right. And because you're supposed to know it, in some ways that becomes a barrier because you don't want to ask the, quote, dumb questions. True. So it's frustrating. True. <laughs> did you feel like that? Like, did you feel that you couldn't really have a conversation with him where you could just say like, I don't have. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely his work. I remember coming to his office. I remember seeing trading floors and them being really intimidating and busy. Um, Lots of men, very few women at the time. And that was also very interesting, but it was an intimidating culture. And I remember seeing the stock tickers above and him explaining what the different symbols meant. And that was really interesting because you could watch. And at the time, it was, I think, a slower time for trading, let's say in the late 80s, early 90s. So you could see different trades. He could point out this trade is happening and this is what that means. And I remember even once going um, and seeing commodity trading, which was set up completely differently and trying to explain the hand signals and what they meant. Again, times are very different now, but it was fascinating. I'm not sure I fully got it though. I sort of got it, but it's a very fast moving world, especially when now it's faster because it's all computerized, but when it was being done by humans, for someone who's an outsider to understand, it was more intimidating because they're speaking a different language. Absolutely. Even the hand gestures. Right. How cool, though, that he took you, at least so that you had some experience with that world. It was really cool. And I think looking back, you realize how fortunate you were. And I I even remember, you know, he was part of this company that went public. And I remember being so proud when he was on at the New York Stock Exchange on that balcony that they have ringing the opening bell and what a cool moment it was. Hmm. So that's all kind of like public facing, for lack of a better term, like, like, you're out there, you're at the stock market with him, you're at the commodity exchange with him, you're seeing the public, the company go public. Did you guys talk about that stuff at home that much? Not as much as you would think. And it's interesting that we did not talk about it as much as you would think because he really wanted me to go into a Wall Street job. In fact, when I... Yeah. So I had an internship. I wanted to be a journalist and I wrote for the high school newspaper and I worked at the local, the TV at college and all that. And during the summer, I wanted to get an internship in television news. But of course, they didn't pay money, Danielle, in media, TV internships. So I was financially dependent on him. And also, frankly, I, we got along very well. It wasn't something where I was going to be rebellious anyway. But he felt it was in my best interest if I was going to do some kind of a TV news internship that it should be in financial news because when I came to my senses, I would then have learned about... <laughs> basics of finance. So my summer between junior and senior year, where did I have an internship? At CNN Financial News. It was CNN Business News technically at the time. And the primary show was 
hosted by Lou Dobbs, and they had a morning show hosted by Deborah Markini and Stuart Varney. Stuart Varney's still on Fox, and now is on Fox, I should say. And they also did a lot of business updates that were global. And through that, I did learn quite a bit about finance. And I remember a gentleman named Myron Candell. I don't know where he is these days, but he took me under his wing. He looked out for a lot of the interns and he was trying to teach me to write about finance and I could not get the bond correctly. I kept mixing it up because bonds have an inverse, the bond price and the yield have an inverse relationship. And I just couldn't master that. And he would go over it. He would have me write a practice story and I kept getting it wrong. And finally, by the end of the summer, I had mastered understanding the inverse relationship between bond price and bond yield. So I'm forever grateful. But I, you know what he did though, that has been very good for me. He did tell me, and I did do this to go take a class on how the markets worked. And I did do that. And I also took a whole class at his suggestion on how the Fed worked. Oh, interesting. At, I think it was at the New York Institute of Finance back then. And so that served me really well because if you understand why all these things are moving the way that they do because everything's interconnected that actually serves you well especially when you're trying to communicate it in business tv where you have to really simplify everything for a mainstream audience if you don't understand the complications behind the simplification it's very hard to communicate it accurately because you can mess that up yeah yeah when you start getting into simplifying things you have to make sure you really understand it because otherwise you're going to simplify you do it's it's easy to mess up especially currencies were really hard for me as well well i don't understand the bond yield whatever that you just said was (laughs) (laughs) basically when, when when prices go up for bonds the yield meaning how much you get what you're earning on it is going to go down because because the price is higher okay yeah there's an inverse relationship got it see as with most investing stuff it makes sense once you understand what somebody's talking about but but exactly so now we have the yields are generally going up because we're in a cycle where the fed is raising rates so as that happens bonds Mm -hmm. the price of a bond is going down got it yeah, it's and it's people are talking now, the bond that you already own is worth less. Right. Basically. <laughs> Isn't it interesting though, the price, the price I should say. Just to go back to your dad sort of saying like, yeah, you know, yay financial journalism internship, but only if you do it over here at this <laughs> CNN money. Right. Um, he wanted it right because the idea is that I would have the knowledge to do that. And by the way, he's still working on that because I left Reuters after 15 years of doing business news there and I became a C- I got the CFP certification which we can talk about and now he's still waiting for me to go actually go work at a firm. <laughs> <laughs> he's waiting to this day. That long-held dream. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But I just think it's so interesting how such a small little thing where a parent just is kind of like, okay, sure, that's fine, as long as you just do it in this slightly different way. And you're a kid and you're kind of like, sure, okay, I just want to go be at a network. Like, this is a way to do it. Cool, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And the way it I- then shaped how you went in your life. I mean, that's extraordinary when you look back on that. It is extraordinary. And, and in many ways, it is a gift because I do think that I've had a wonderful time doing financial news. It is fascinating. And it's a great way to have a career and also have some work-life balance for me. So it's been, it, it ended up being a very good choice compared to local news. Mm. I also don't think I have the stomach for some of the stuff that happens in local news. I mean, it's nice because at least in financial news, you're generally reporting things. Nobody really gets hurt. It would be pretty rare to have someone 
physically hurt in financial news. So there's some tragedy for sure. There's a lot of um, crime, certainly, when you you get these waves where you have something like Madoff. So it happens. Bad things can happen. But in general, you're rooting for at least for me, I'm pro-capitalism. You are rooting for companies to succeed. You're rooting for people to earn money and benefit from the news and information that you bring them. And I like that. I feel like just as with your program with your dad, you are hopefully putting people in a better place for having spent the time with you. Exactly. And I think it's also a constant lifelong learning experience, which you're not getting reporting the local news. But as a financial journalist, you have to be constantly upping your game, learning about new companies, learning about new swings in the market so that you can, as you said, explain it to everybody. And I think that's got to be interesting always. It is fascinating because you have to be a very quick study, but it's so much fun because you come home from work every day having learned, literally learned something new, whether it's a company that went public and you had to instantly learn about their business, or it's a company that missed earnings and you have to decipher why, what went wrong. The market expected this, but then this happened. Mm-hmm. What's the missing link to the puzzle? It's fascinating. So you said you were intimidated by financial stuff. And yet you also told me that your grandfather started to give you some money to invest when you were little. How did that all yes. start happening? So he used to, so this is my, my mother's stepfather who was the only grandfather. Unfortunately, my biological grandfather had passed away before I was born. So this was my, um, my grandfather effectively on my mother's side. And he was a very generous man and he had made his money really investing. And he really prioritized teaching his grandchildren about investing. And so he would give us, I believe it was 5,000 at the beginning. I believe some years it was $10,000 when we were young adults, late teens and on. And his pretty, yeah, every year um, until maybe the last 10 years of his life. He lived to be, I think I want to over a hundred, I want to say 103. So maybe the last few years, not so much, but certainly for quite a few years. And It is amazing. First of all, it's just the fact that he did that is amazing. But the other thing that I think is even more amazing and the bigger gift is that he required that we could invest it, but he required that we invest it in a stock and we report back to him what stock and specifically why we chose that stock. And it had to be a stock that we understood. Wow. So I still remember investing. You could only choose one company. You couldn't choose five. Right. Well, I think you could probably go to him and argue your case, but, but the I idea was, was choosing one, one company. The idea was that you would research one company and understand it very well and then go to him and explain why. Oh my God. Why you chose that company. He's a and acolyte. He, apparently, we never talked directly about that, but he did advocate doing a lot of research, being company specific. And I remember. He liked big names, and but he was kind of nudge. One year, I do remember he was like, "You might take a look at Pfizer." <laughs> he really liked Pfizer. I just remember that. So yeah, he liked big pharma at the time. Out. I mean, I'm handing you a check here, and yeah, wink, wink. That might be okay. Um, and 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 yeah, I remember buying Ford. I remember um, buying Microsoft. But you know what? I think it taught me really well to pay attention and to really do your homework and your research. And that was really a gift. And the fact that he made us follow up and basically defend what we chose was also a big part of it. So what did this look? Okay, so he would 
you had this money and then yes. you would say, okay, now go pick the company and then you're going to have to defend it to me. So what did you do? Did you just go and read annual reports? Like how did you start this from nothing? I, I probably didn't do great research the way you would now. I remember I would just read the newspapers and stuff. He would, he would read the newspapers. I mean, he was someone, I remember him sitting at the desk with the papers and they used to print the stock prices for the mm -hmm. day on the newspapers growing up in the 1980s. So you would see, I remember seeing him at, at his desk. He was in Hartford and then they were in Palm Beach and we would go down we would see him hovered over his desk looking at his investments and researching. So I think that I just probably at that time was reading newspapers Mostly. I mean, that's a great way to do it. There, that's the way. Yeah. I mean, there were probably other ways, but that might've been better, but that's what it was. And, and companies that I knew, you know, that I kind of was familiar with. Yeah. So you already, big companies. I mean, you're, you did it. It's, I'm, it's like blowing my mind because you're doing it exactly. And the way he taught you was exactly the way I learned just in a kind of like less formal version, which is you start with a company that you already know, you probably already have an experience with, you already have an opinion about. And then you go and you find out what's going on with them by reading the news. And you are somebody who's interested in journalism. So you were probably especially interested in what was out there. How were people talking about this company? What kind of coverage did they have? And then come up with a defense, like, like write the story of the company, essentially. Talk about why it's a good idea, why it may not be a good idea, and then go defend it. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's the exact process that my dad has taught me. Yeah, and that's interesting. And, and also, I should say, probably by my early 20s, when I was working at CNBC and then CNN Financial News, I probably did also have access to a lot more information through the technology that I had at work, to be fair. Which is totally cool. Yeah. Right. But I wasn't in some deep, exclusive insider information. I had nothing, you know... So I, I wasn't doing technical analysis, that kind of thing. Although I did take, I nerded out. I did in, in a phase when I was at CNBC, they would pay for classes. And I did take a bunch of classes, one of which was technical analysis because <laughs> that was really intimidating. And at the time, they would do a lot of that on CNBC and I would have these guests on and I was a producer at the time. And I really, it was so over my head, Danielle. I really didn't get it. And to this day, I don't fully, I don't, it, for me, that's not something that makes a lot of sense for me, mm -hmm. but there were all these stochastics and these, you know, different lines and different ways of measuring things and the, the different trend lines. It, it, I wanted to at least understand it, even the, even if I didn't buy into it. Yeah. We just did a couple of podcasts on technical indicators, which took us like two months to get through because we kept on veering off into stuff that was actually interesting. And then we would come back and go, oh yeah, we need to finish technical indicators. So everybody who's been listening through that knows how long it took us to get through it. And I'm glad we did it because as you said, now I know the, the bare bones of what that stuff is. And that's good. It's good to know what something is. But I also learned that it's just not the kind of thing I'm particularly interested in. Right. I think if you're going to do that, you have to really understand it and you have to really commit to it because it does work for some people, but you have to do a deep dive. And, and if, if you're going to do it, do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, kind of like any part of investing. If you're going to do it, do it. Like do it right, learn it, practice it, go all in. So how about now? So you grew up already putting money into individual companies. 
and then you went into financial journalism. Did you continue doing investing as you got older? I did not. I will tell you why. Tell me. Number why. one, as it's very specific to my career choice. When you're a financial journalist, what you do, and, and I worked for the top companies. I worked for CNBC. I worked for CNN, PBS, and then Reuters. And these are all companies with very strong ethics policies. So it's very hard to be purchasing stocks when you are reporting on them. Yeah, I thought you might say that. So, yeah. So I basically made a decision. I kept the stocks that I had because also selling them is a statement. So I said, okay, I had these, I'm not going to sell them, but if I sell them, I'm going to sell them based on a life phase. Like if I'm going to buy an apartment and I need more cash for the down payment and I will be able to say that publicly should anyone ask that it's not driven by a news event. So I kept the stocks that I had and I basically switched to index funds and ETFs. And my husband works for a company where they are also very mindful of conflicts of interest. And in fact, they mandated that we sell. He's worked for two different large accounting firms. And by the time we got through both of them, um, because also of the level of his job, they parcel through every stock that they watch everything we do. Mm -hmm. So we've had to, over the years, basically shed a lot of the individual stocks. We may have a handful left, but unfortunately, and, and they haven't always been the best time to sell, but we've been stuck. So we've had to sell them basically for um, optics hmm. for the companies that we've worked for. It just doesn't look good yeah. to be talking about those stocks or for him to be doing business and, and potentially having insider information about a stock and then owning it. No, so yeah, you can't be doing that. Because of that, we are primarily in index funds. Um, we do have a little bit of money outsourced to a company that manages it, but I'm not aware of what stocks they're buying. And how do you feel about that? Does that bother you at all? A little. I wish that I could. I think that I would like to have a percentage of my money. Statistically, I know a lot of people believe in index funds, and I think there's a lot of value to index funds, especially in terms of your cost. Because if you use an efficient one, it can really keep your, um, your cost down. Mm -hmm. But I do think if you, as you go through life and you have a bigger portfolio, it can be interesting to analyze a stock and follow it with a certain percentage of your income. So we'll see what we can do later in life when maybe we're in a different phase. But I also think that I believe in the ethics of the companies that I've worked for and the companies that he works for. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. It's... It's that, it's that tough thing. And when I was a practicing attorney, I also had that requirement where you couldn't, um, you had to report where you owned and you couldn't invest in certain anything that you had any sort of knowledge about. So it's all very, very good rules and important. But um, also, well, maybe it's a good time then to practice and be continuing <laughs> your research so that once you, things change and once you have the ability to then buy individual companies again, you're ready to go. No problem. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's fun. I'm starting to talk to my son about investing his really? money. And, and my stepson, who's 18, is also very, he's proactively very interested in investing. So I think we'll have some interesting conversations. How do you speak to them about it? I've gotten so many questions from people asking how they can educate their kids better about money and investing. How do you do it? It depends on the age. Um, with the 18-year-old, he's proactively very interested in it. And so he's asking me questions. Mm -hmm. And he's now setting up his own account 
where my husband and I have our accounts. So he'll open an account. He's not a minor anymore. So he, you know, can set it up himself. I set up an account for my now 11 year old. And with him, we're going to maybe pick a stock or two and we have to clear it with my husband's company, of course, after he gets back from camp. But he likes companies that he can relate to. So for example, he likes Minecraft and that was bought by Microsoft. So that's a company that we've been discussing whether or not he might want to invest in that. Cool. So I think relatability, just like it's really the same thing. It's what do you know? And so you start there and then you investigate where the company is in their business and, and what they're focused on. And our, Microsoft, for example, has made a lot of changes recently in their focus. So that's something to look at. Are they headed in the right direction? Yeah. So start with relatability. And I think probably the way you speak about it and make it accessible to him is key. I mean, like yes. the way for you, it's really cool to me the way you're, you have this tradition of speaking about money through the generations from your grandfather to your father talking to you about it, both of them talking to you about it. Now you teaching your son and your stepson. How beautiful that you guys are passing down this investing knowledge and a real way to take care of yourself outside of a salary, outside of career. Yeah. And it's interesting, Danielle, I just remembered this, that we were talking about me seeing exchanges with my dad. Just two weeks ago, right before he left for camp, I was doing business news updates because I still do business news anchoring. I do local news updates on occasion and I do them from the NASDAQ market site, which is right in Times Square in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I actually brought Harry, my 11-year-old, to the NASDAQ and we had a lot of fun there. So he loved it. He got to see the whole, it's basically a TV studio, but he saw we were in a little booth where we do the local news updates and people see me on, on local news saying the business headlines of the day and where the market opened or where it looks like it's going to open because we get there really early. <laughs> and although that day we didn't get there that early, otherwise I, I wouldn't have taken him there at three in the morning, <laughs> but he was able to see where the business news is filmed and he could see all the stock prices start changing at 930. And he was very excited seeing the opening bell at the NASDAQ market site. They do a great job there. It's so much fun. There's confetti everywhere. And, she even, so cool. and yeah, oh, it's so much fun. And then we even saw, he noticed the woman with this, this the, the house, house, the maid there, whatever, the cleaning lady there is so sweet. And she was, um, you know, vacuuming up the confetti <laughs> afterwards. So it was like, so Harry got to see. So, yeah. So look, there isn't really so much. There is, look, the New York Stock Exchange, I have not been able to get down there with Harry yet. I will now put that on my list to have a friend bring me down there, but he's seen the NASDAQ market site. And so that in and of itself can open up a lot of questions. And I don't yeah. know if they hold tours for the public there, but I think it's certainly interesting if anyone ever does have the opportunity to go there or down to the New York Stock Exchange and really make it a tangible experience. It's definitely worthwhile. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, the, just the, the normalization of it for him, like to him, that's normal. You go to the NASDAQ. It is. We're very fortunate. <laughs> where your mom works. Like, yeah, that's he's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm a kid from people always say to me stuff like, oh, like your dad was always doing investing stuff. And I'm like, I'm a kid from Iowa and Wyoming. I had never been anywhere yeah. until I was 18. And he never showed that world to me. And so, you know, there were a lot of other things going on in our lives. So this is not to um, right <laughs> at all, but I just can only imagine what it would feel like as a kid to just have that be part of your lexicon, part of your history, part of what 
is something that you've just shared with a parent. How cool. Yeah, I think he had a good time. As you say, though, everyone grows up in their own bubble of their own family. So he grew up coming to Broiders and being in the TV studio and seeing in the control room how everything works. So that is to some degree his normal, but I do like it that he is proud of me. And it assuages a lot of working mom guilt because you do get that guilt when you go to work every day and you feel really terrible. And seeing when your child comes to work with you that they are proud of you and what you've accomplished is really meaningful. Mm. So, and, and hopefully it does get him interested in investing whatever he ends up doing for his career. Exactly. It's not that he has to go into finance. I mean, the way your dad really wanted you to go into finance and you kind of did, but also did your own thing. Like he may not ever have anything to do with it, but to just have that ability on the side, essentially to like make it his side hustle so that he can have financial freedom in his life. That is such a gift. I hope it will be. I hope (laughs) we all hope for our children to be (laughs) successful and happy and healthy and all those good things. Exactly. Exactly. You know what? And kids go through phases. He's interested now. He may not be interested in a year and then maybe he'll come back to it. Totally. Totally. So how did you get Bobby from uh, being a journalist, from talking and engaging with finance from the third rail, so to speak, to becoming a certified financial planner? So I was very fortunate, first of all, from those days at CNN that we talked about earlier where Myron Kandel, who uh, was sort of a, one of the bosses there, and he helped a lot of interns and taught us all so much, he encouraged us to take courses. So I started with taking those courses back you know, when I was in college on the Fed and how that worked and how the treasury market worked and technical analysis. By the time I got to CNBC, they had this thing where if you took classes, they would pay for them. Mm. So I started taking classes towards a CFP at the time with a friend of mine, just because we wanted to know the questions to ask. Because when you're a journalist, you don't want, it's not that someone's not going to tell you the truth. You want to make sure that you can get a complete answer. And to do that, you have to understand what they're saying and you have to be able to know what the follow-up question should be. In other words, you need to know what to ask. So we took, we started, there were six classes to get the CFP. So we started taking those classes because they were free and I certainly was interested and she was interested too. So I had a buddy to do it with. And at the time, the CFP board did not allow journalists to become CFPs. You had to actually have practiced for several years. So we took the classes, but then that was that. So I had the knowledge all the way through. Hmm. And then, as it happens, most of my career was really focused on investing in the stock market because that's what business television news is focused on, less so than personal finance. So the investing part I knew a lot about, but then you don't really do a lot of TV reports on insurance and retirement planning and that kind of thing. And is that included on the certified financial planner? Yes. So the certified financial planner, there's six components, one of which is ethics, but the other ones are things like insurance, retirement planning, um, investing estate planning, things like that. Got it. So I had the knowledge, but then as I was writing my book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, people started to, and as it came out, people started to ask me more of these personal finance questions. The book itself is really a journalist book. I interviewed people for the book. So they're the experts and I'm really compiling it and then adding in specific information for my readers to follow up. 
So someone would tell a story about something related to estate planning. They would say, my parent died without an estate plan. And then I would go through the basics of estate planning, hmm. which I had researched. So I researched the book because I wasn't necessarily an expert per se, but everything was researched and vetted. So people then, as I was promoting the book, would ask me these questions. And even though I, I really did know the answers, Danielle, I didn't feel comfortable giving any advice because I was, quote, just a journalist mm -hmm. and I didn't want to be giving advice. So at it's that time- It's a scary thing to be it is. heading this towards is a, that level. I can see from people who do give it that it's, they take it very seriously. They should take it very seriously. And you have to be very careful because you don't know people's circumstances. Yes. There may be a very important piece of information that they are leaving out. And I always say that we should not judge people for their, quote, financial mistakes. I remember interviewing a woman, this is just a little tangent, during the housing crisis. She was losing her house. She had over leveraged herself because, number one, a banker had verbally lied to her, not a banker, a, um, a salesperson had verbally lied to her and said that her rate would not change. And in fact, it was a balloon. Uh, second mortgage that she had no. signed and also which means that you're you pay very little and then you get a massive payment yeah. for anyone that doesn't know that and then also the reason that she took out the loan was because she had a family member that was you know in in very poor health and needed an operation and this was the, their, their insurance would not cover it to the extent needed and so it wasn't like she went out shopping yeah. right so she's losing her home with all, she had done everything the best intentions from her heart so we we have to you might not have known that if you didn't ask the right questions. So I think it's important to be very careful giving financial advice. So anyway, so I started thinking, well, if I'm going to go on this path where I am promoting this book and I want to do more on this theme of helping people in a more tangible way than I was doing with TV, I was helping people, but not in the as personal a way. And I really wanted to get out there and help people and speak to people, especially young people, about how to be better with their money. It's something I'm very passionate about. I really wanted to know my stuff. And as I said, I took these classes a long time ago. The CFP board had recently started allowing some journalists with credentials to become CFPs. And so I got in touch with them. And I don't know that they approve all journalists. I think that they're, my understanding is that they're selective based on your experience. But by this time, I had had quite a number of years doing financial journalism and had a lot of credibility. I was also writing a column for Reuters about millennial personal finance issues hmm. and doing some, you know, it was pretty cerebral stuff. I think they knew that I was quite serious about it. And so they did approve me taking the test and that if I took the test and passed, I could be a CFP. And that's what happened. Wow. Congratulations. So basically, not they had a test either. No, I actually committed. I did it full-time as my full-time job for four months. Wow. I didn't know. Wow. That's like the bar exam. And it was long days. I would be up till midnight most nights. I really studied from 8 a.m. till midnight, only stopping to, you know, pick up my son from, from school or camp, whatever was going on. But I was up very late studying, doing a lot of practice exams. The company that I did it through, which is through, it's New York University, but then there's a company called Dalton and I have no affiliation with them or anything, but they did a very good job with their, it's online. It was, they had follow-up phone calls. They had books, they had index cards, they had in-person. I did everything, Danielle. I mean, I took it very seriously. There's a lot of information. If you go to a CFP, they know their stuff. Let me tell you, <laughs> they don't mess around there. Well, it's, it is, I mean, it is a hard, I I don't think in my life I took such a hard exam ever. Now I'm not a lawyer like you, so I didn't take the bar, but this was pretty hard. Well, I mean, it's exactly the same. It sounds like the same kind of studying that the bar exam requires. 
like all it was the time intense, every day for thing. four months that's what you do for the bar exam so yeah because I felt that if I did it halfway or even 90 percent what if I did it 90 percent and I didn't pass I know. so think of all that wasted time it was a big toll on my family and I didn't want to have to take it again good choice so. and you didn't no. But you said- and now I'm actually, sadly, we're nerding out. I, I, I'm actually looking forward to taking continuing ed because <laughs> a lot of the laws have changed since I took it because I took it in November of 2017. And we have a new president and he has changed a lot of the laws and getting rid of a lot of regulation. So I am looking forward to getting up to speed on the changes through my continuing education, which is something they also require, both in terms of knowledge and they require continuing ed with respect to ethics. And ethics is a big part of the CFP. And one of the reasons that I am such an advocate for people using CFPs for advice because they are very strict ethics. And that's something very important in investing. It's huge. It's just huge. You want to be going to somebody who has those regulations in place, who has continuing education requirements. It, it just, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad you're Things saying change. that. It, it is important. I mean, our tax law has changed. Our state law has changed. Investing has changed, especially in terms of regulations. So it's a moving target and it's very important to stay up to speed. Now, when it comes to actual investing, does the CFP process like advise any particular kind of investing approach or is it more agnostic and you just learn the basics of how markets work and the laws? You learn the basics, you learn a lot of history and you learn a lot of investment theory. Mm. So uh, different investment models and ways that people can think and uh, yeah, basically just that. It, different different ways of approaching investing. It doesn't judge, but it it shows you different ways to approach investing. Well, you and the risks, and, and this is a key thing: the risks associated with different kinds of investing, which is also very interesting. Mm. You sent me some of these questions that you had to learn, and I think they yes. are amazing. I think I have. I think I have, I looked, I will, because, so we, we didn't do a lot of preparation for this because it was a little bit last minute, but I did look, um, I have piles and piles of books and index cards under my bed because the law changed. (laughs) So I couldn't really give them to anybody. And I was looking at them. Sadly, this is, this is really nerding out, like reminiscing. Like remember my <laughs> flashcards? Oh, it was, a lot of, it was a lot of work, but I did enjoy learning. The actual information is fascinating. Bobby, actually, I have to tell you, I have all of my <laughs> handwritten flashcards from my bar exam, which I cannot throw away or give away because I spent so many hours writing them out and creating them that I'm just going to keep them forever in a precious little card box. And every now and then, look at them and remember the pain. I don't understand it. The pain, but also the joy that you passed, right? <laughs> I guess That's the so. focus of the joy of passing. And by the way, I, so I, I, I did, so I sent you some photos of some, just a handful of, of cards that I thought were interesting and relevant to your audience. But I do have also handwritten ones because as part of my studying, I do think that when you handwrite something, you, you learn it. remember it. Yes. Yes. So I have handwritten too, but I didn't think that they would photograph as well. And my <laughs> handwriting is good for me, but maybe not for other people. <laughs> All right. So I want to ask you one of these questions. We'll do a little trivia. Okay. Okay. So I, I will, maybe we'll pause in between so the audience can kind of think of their, <laughs> what they think the answer is. Well, it's just, funny. and well, can we just do full disclosure? I have the cards in front of me. Yeah. We have the cards so in front of us. Totally we are, we yes, are looking at the answers. <laughs> Which, but it's so interesting even just to see some of these questions. So the first one, 
I'll read the question, then I'll tell you what it reminds me of. So the first question is, what is the relationship in number of days between, quote, the ex-dividend date and, quote, date of record? Now, right. This, I think, us, changed, by the way. By the way, oh, it I think it changed. But go on. Well, okay, so the answer is not so important here, guys. But for most of us, we will have never even heard those terms before. The only reason I knew those terms, the ex-dividend date, was because about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, I remember I was at my dad's house visiting him and he started running around going, I've got to find out the ex-dividend date of whatever company he was looking at. And, and he goes, I need you to look it up for me. You're a lawyer. Find this stuff out. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And so then we did a whole bunch of Googling and searching and there's all kinds of competing information out there. And the internet, yes. by the way, is not a hundred percent reliable. So no, it was very, you have to be very careful. And I ended up getting all into the SEC website, trying to figure out what the actual answer was. So Bobby, what yes. is the and relationship you know what? between the end date and date of record? Yes, go ahead. Let me just say, by the way, the sec.gov website and irs.gov are excellent websites. I agree. If anyone ever wants to know something. I love they, that you're saying that because they're very well written. Every time I say that, my dad yells at me about how horribly difficult they are to use. And no, they are not. They've gotten better. Easiest, but I think they're not too bad. And I like to go straight to the source. Exactly. Because then you know it's correct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, okay, so here's the answer. Okay, so an investor must purchase the stock before the ex-dividend date, dividend date or three days pr prior to the date of record. The ex-dividend date is two business days prior to the date of record. Okay, remember, an investor must buy the stock prior to the ex-dividend date to receive the dividend. So that's really the heart of it, is that whatever the ex-dividend date is, you need to buy that stock before the ex-dividend date or you're not getting that company's dividend for that quarter. Yes, so that's the so point. So that's why that you will the value not of get the, the dividend if right. you have not purchased before the ex-dividend date. And this is like classic legal confusingness because you can't actually buy it on the ex-dividend date. You have to buy it the day before. Right, you have to buy it before. So, but you're saying- And you, that's you important. Think it might have so if you're buying a stock for the dividend, you need to make sure you buy it at the right time or figure it into the price that you think is the right price for the stock. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So, but you, you think it might've changed? It might be longer or shorter? I think that, I think it may have changed. I'm not sure. Not the, not the concept, Yeah, yeah. but I feel like that was something they were looking mm. at. I'm not sure. So as usual, this podcast is for education and entertainment only. We do not know your right. situation and you should not listen to us for any particular right. investment. I think it used to be three businesses. I think it might be now two. They, they were looking at that. So double check that. Yeah. Go to SEC.gov. Go to SEC.gov. But the principle is the same. The, the, the most important thing is that when you're buying a stock that is a dividend paying stock, be aware of where, when the ex-dividend date is and make sure that you factor that into the price that you want to pay. Yeah, exactly. Well, know whether you're getting the dividend or not. And I didn't even know that that was a thing until this whole thing happened. Because for most of us, and we've talked a bunch about dividends on our podcast, you're buying the company regardless of the dividend. The dividend is priced in, like we're not doing it because of that. But then there are some people who have a dividend-oriented 
investing strategy. And it's good to know about these things. Classic, like, right. Just, you know, right. If the company is a good company, you're going to buy the company anyway. Just be aware of when, when it is, if it matters to you based on the price that the price point that you feel is the right value price point. Exactly. So next one, value weighted index. What are the characteristics and examples of a value weighted index? Should I say the answer? Yes, please. Okay. Characteristic takes market capitalization, shares outstanding times price into account. So for example, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, and I don't even know what this is, the EAFE. I don't know what that is either. I don't know what the EAFE is. Oh, well. So, so I don't know. This oh, is interesting to me though. Stock market index fund. Um, it stands for Europe. Australasia and the Far East. Oh, got it. Okay. National. I should know about that, but I don't. Um, so to me, this is how indexes are so, all calculated. I actually didn't know that there was a different kind of it. No, no. So for example, like the Dow is, I believe, equal weighted. Meaning that it doesn't take the shares outstanding into account. It doesn't take Right. So every company is sort of equal. Oh. So it's, it adds up. So for the Dow, to calculate the Dow, it's the sum of all the prices of all the 30 stocks divided by the Dow divisor. Really? And that divisor is actually adjusted for stock splits and spinoffs and all of that. So different indexes are calculated in different ways. Whoa, this is so uh -huh. awesome that we're talking about this. I didn't know that. So yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think of the implications of what. So that's a, so the Dow is a price weighted index. Yeah. And the S&P. As opposed to a value weighted index, is which is the S&P 500. Weighted index. And so that would explain why they move at different rates. Right. And, and remember also the Dow, it's interesting. I am a little skeptical with the Dow because they've replaced, well, they, they replace the stocks over the years with, with them, with different companies all the time, first of all. So the Dow of today is not the Dow of yes, of a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. certainly. So it's, it's, the Dow changes, but also when you make a change in the Dow, because there's only 30 stocks, I think that's very meaningful. Absolutely. It's also meaningful for the, the S&P 500, but it's 500 stocks. It's 500 stocks and it's weighted, whereas if the Dow is not weighted, then swapping one company out for another can matter quite a lot. That's really right. interesting. Whoa, this is great. Learning things. The Dow, here's a fact. The Dow components have changed 51 times since, since its inception on May 26th of 1896. That's actually fewer times than I would have expected. And I think the most recent change was GE was replaced by Walgreens. Oh, really? <laughs> that happened um, recently in the last month. GE is not in the Dow anymore. No. For that. Well, GE split up a lot. Yeah. GE moved to different, you know, they spun off their, their financial part. So GE is a very different company as well. All right, let's talk about the characteristics of the Securities Act of 33 versus the Securities Act of, 40, of 34. Now, this is the bane of every lawyer's existence, or at least corporate lawyers, <laughs> because there are two. This was, I think this is actually on the exam. I'm sure it was. <laughs> it's very, well, it was a little bit confusing. Okay, so the Securities Act of 1933 regulates the issuance of new security. So that's like IPOs. 
It requires new issues be accompanied by a prospectus before being offered. So what's interesting about these, these rules is that they are obviously, when you look back, and I don't know the full history of it, something prompted that, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe there were some shenanigans going on with new stocks. So now they're suddenly requiring them to be regulated and there to be a real prospectus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So people know what they're buying. So maybe something happened. Because this is, think about the year, 1933. Mm -hmm. What happened in 1933? Well, it's the end of the, de the Depression. Absolutely. It's a Depression-era law. And then we have the Securities Act of 1934 regulates the secondary market and trading of securities. So it's like maybe they couldn't get them all done <laughs> in 1933. And they started with a, the primary market. And by 34, they were on to the secondary market. Yeah, well, and here's the main thing that happened in 34. It created the SEC to regulate. Yes. Because they were just flying without a net until then. And I think they just went, oh, my gosh, we have to get something in here. And they like threw right. it together. Exactly. So you're coming off, you know, the market crash of 29. And here we are, and we're, you know, trying to get out of that and have people have faith in the stock market again. And so they're putting these rules together mm -hmm. and creating more regulation. Or if maybe it was, you know, first regulation, really, first really strong regulation that, you know, to really get things in order and have people be confident in the capital markets. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we learn a lot of history from these laws. We, we do. Or not laws, Securities Act. Not, it's not a law. I don't want to mis, misspeak, misspeak. Securities Act. Yes. Um, and then the last card here is the characteristics of the Securities Investors Protection Act of 1970 and the characteristics mm -hmm. of the Insider Trading and Securities Fraud Enforcement Act of 1988. Exactly. So again, you know, you think about what's going on here. So this, so this established the SIPC, which is the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, to protect investors from losses resulting from brokerage firm failures. So there must have been some brokerage firm failures going on in 1970. This act, this, I'm reading the card now, this act does not protect investors, though, from incompetence or bad investment decisions. Ding, ding, so basically, ding, ding. if you mess up, it's still on yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. And then in 88, they moved into insider trading. So it defines an insider as anyone with information that's not available to the public, which is actually a pretty, uh, the whole insider trading thing is a pretty interesting description. And there's been a bunch of- Right. And there were a lot of investment, a lot of insider trading scandals. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's teaching us history, learning these, these rules. So- <laughs> now we've learned. <laughs> now we go forth. See, even without our dads here, we're learning, right? <laughs> well, I think you know your stuff. Like, I'm reading off cards, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> we've been very honest about that because, but the truth is, you really want to be careful. I mean, look, I passed the test, I, I memorized everything, I, I still understand everything, but you always want to double check things because this mm -hmm. stuff is serious. Mm -hmm. That's, you need to be really careful. I mean, I'm serious. Like, I there's so much information out there on the web and so many quick ways to get investing information. And I am just, maybe it's just my personality, but I'm just such a stickler for going to the source. Like, I download the PDFs of annual reports to make sure that nobody's messed with the numbers because computers can accidentally report the wrong number in some category, and it just freaks me out. So... Absolutely. And I've seen some very talented journalists 
well-intentioned report something in a way where they use a word and they don't necessarily know that the nuance of that word creates a different implication. Mm -hmm. And so it is important to go to the primary source. And especially, like I said, I, we, we were giggling, but it's really true. IRS.gov um, was one of my go-to websites for studying for the CFP exam. Absolutely. And it is well-written now. Maybe in the past it wasn't, but the same can be said for SEC.gov. And even when you're learning about student loans, the government websites, when you want to learn about um, student loan forgiveness, I was researching it for a podcast recently, you go to that website, the government website, and they have very clear, specific information about that. And those are great places to go. Even the Fed's website has great information if you want to understand how the Fed works. Oh, that's cool. I've never looked at the it Fed's does. website. Yeah. I see. I, this is why I like this so much. I think Federal Reserve. Oh, yeah, it came up. It came up. I had a bookmark. <laughs> it came up right away on my computer. But if you go to federalreserve.gov. There you go. It's very clear explaining. It says about the Fed. It explains how everything works. It has data. It has economic research. It even has FAQs. I love it. I mean, this, this is why I like this so much. And I think this is probably why you are still so fascinated by being a financial journalist and by learning about companies and investing. You're always learning. And that's just always fun. I like it. I think I'm just a giant nerd who likes to learn about new stuff. And this is a an incredible yeah. way to learn about the world. And things are always changing. I mean, even whoever is at the head of the, the Federal Reserve and the different things they're doing right now, it's a very interesting time at the Fed. And I know we're really nerding out here, but it's very, um, it's always precarious. But because we're in this raising rate cycle, people are always, you wonder, why are we talking about this so much? Well, because there are so many different things that get impacted by the Fed. And so if they raise rates maybe too fast, then that can impact not only your investing, but if it impacts the housing market, it can help retirees. People forget the flip side. When we have rates so low, retirees on a fixed income maybe can't earn money in their super safe investments that they feel they need to be in. So there's an upside to rates going up. Very interesting it may get more expensive to borrow money for our house, but maybe that will keep housing prices more stable. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of interconnectivity in all of these different economic things that are going on in our world. And of course, tied to politics. Of course. <laughs> well, and it's all about practice and experience and gaining perspective on what's happening, which I feel yes. like we've gotten a great glimpse of talking to you. Bobby, thank you so much you. for being on the podcast. Today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, by the way, your episode of Financial Grown Up is wonderful. And I just want to reiterate the advice that you gave on there, which was to read the newspapers and stay up to date on everything per our conversation we just had. That's really great advice that you gave to my listeners. And I hope that your listeners also take that to heart, that it's important to stay up to date on everything going on in the world. Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you and about financial grown up. So my website is bobbyrebell.com, B-O-B-B-I-R-E-B-E-L-L. From there, you can get to everything. On Twitter, I'm at bobbyrebell. On Instagram, at bobbyrebell1. Facebook, my page is bobbyrebell. So that's the theme, basically. Perfect. And we are working on a new website for financial grown-ups. So there will be financialgrownup.com, but it's not quite ready yet. But we'll make sure everyone can route over there awesome. soon. So go to Financial Grown-Up on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you listen to podcasts on and follow Yes. And uh, thank you. Bobby, I hope you'll come back sometime soon and we can keep chatting. Anytime. Stuff. 
This was great. All right. Thanks so much. What am I up to this summer? I'm hitting the road. Next stop is Birmingham, Alabama, because I'm taking my three-day transformational investing workshop to the Renaissance Resort on July 20th to 22nd. And here's the best part. I am giving a free scholarship to all the Invested Podcast listeners. So come and meet fellow Rule One investors and learn my personal strategies for picking great companies to invest in. It's going to be a great weekend. Claim your free scholarship at ruleoneinvesting.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoy it. And just figure this out on your own after we teach you to invest. Until next time, go play.